Hello and welcome to the Hashtag Sinbio podcast. I'm your host Zeeshan Siddiqui and today's theme is entrepreneurship and synthetic biology. I'm joined by bioengineer and entrepreneur Miroslav Gasprek. Miro is currently a PhD candidate in engineering science at Oxford University. He's also a venture fellow at Civilization Ventures and part of the steering committee at the European Union Synthetic Biology Society. Miro's research lies at the intersection of SynBio, control theory, and data-driven control methods like reinforcement learning. He's interested in the practical applications of SynBio, its wider impact, and providing solutions to real-life problems, as well as understanding how meaningful and life-saving innovations get to the market. Let's dive right into this episode. When did you first get interested? in synthetic biology? Was this something in high school or university? Um, did you even know like what synthetic biology was in high school? Because, you know, the common term is biotech, right? So when was your first, one, first introduction to synthetic biology? And two, when were you like, oh, this is, this is what I want to be and this is what I want to study and pursue? To answer your question, actually, uh, I will be completely honest in my high school, which was um, between years 2000. 10 and 2015, I had no idea that something like synthetic biology exists. I actually was very passionate about mathematics, physics, you know, all the STEM subjects, and even like, you know, poetry and human rights, just kind of tried to keep my whole roundness. But above all, I was passionate about physics and astrophysics. And, um, you know, I went to um, school in a small local town. Uh, I was bilingual school, so I got the education in English, so uh, I could could really um, really go and explore on my own. But I really focused on physics and astrophysics, and the other passion of mine was medicine. And I went to a couple of these international uh, Olympiads on astronomy, physics, and you know, international young physicist tournament. And so everybody kind of thought that um, I would be naturally inclined to go and study astrophysics. But my other great passion was medicine. And I was kind of very much torn apart between natural sciences and medicine because I always wanted to understand how the human body body works and how the biology works. But I wanted to understand this quantitatively. Like I wanted to utilize my mathematical skills and hopefully some kind of understanding of physics to apply it as in medicine. And that was the reason why I decided to study biomedical engineering uh, at Imperial College London, which seemed it to be exactly that, the cross-sections of mathematics, physics, and medicine. Because the medicine, as I knew it, um, was containing a very little of quantitative thinking and information, which I know kind of now is not necessarily true, but at that point, it was different. So I went to Imperial College and I immediately, you know, as soon as uh, year one of my undergrad, um, got engaged in a research that um, was in systems biology and control theory focused on optimal treatment of eczema. So we are essentially doing mathematical modeling of the optimal treatment strategies for eczema with uh, Dr. Panayotis Christodoulides a PhD student of Dr. Reiko Tanaka, who was my lecturer of mathematics at that point. And I got very interested in nonlinear dynamics and nonlinear systems and, you know, control theory. I did a summer internship with Reiko Tanaka, and then I ended up working with her for the rest of my undergrad. But, you know, control theory and systems biology kind of brought me to, from what I consider to be a descriptive 
uh, utilization of the mathematics and physics. So let's try to describe the processes, perhaps optimize them a bit towards more of this engineering thinking, which synthetic biology seemed to uh, represent. So when I really learned about synthetic biology was in year two of my undergraduate studies, um, apart from some wet labs in year one of my undergrad, I, I wasn't really, you know, that much interested in it. And I got learned about this in a very peculiar way. Usually it would be like you would learn about synthetic biology via some, you know, reading about some cool discovery or like synthetic yeast. No, actually, in my case, it was like uh, my lecturer of signals and systems course uh, was Professor Gibar Stan uh, from Imperial College London, one of the most prom- world's most prominent people working at the intersection of synthetic biology and control theory. He actually recommended me a book because I said, like, okay, like, these are linear systems. Like, can we do something more interesting? And he was like, you should read uh, Biomolecular Feedback Systems from Domitola Del Vecchio and Richard Murray, who are also the tycoons in the field. And I read a book, and it kind of actually led me to, led me to you know, appreciation of synthetic biology. And then it all started rolling. So I actually got to the synthetic biology, why mathematical modeling and systems biology trying to apply the notion of building things rather than describing them. You did a project with Drew Endy. Now, of course, this being, you know, an iGEM podcast, Drew is, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, one of the co-founders of iGEM. He's been on this podcast twice. And if you could tell us a bit about how that opportunity came about and just briefly, what, what was it like uh, working, you know, in his lab and what did you work on? Yes. So just let me step back a bit, perhaps. And so I mentioned after year one of my undergrad, I did this internship with Reiko Tanaka in systems biology and control theory. Year two, I got very passionate about synthetic biology. So uh, I essentially taught about, okay, like, who are the best people in the world working on like modeling or applying control theory in synthetic biology? So um, at the end of year one, we actually had annual bioengineering lecture by Jim Collins from the MIT. Um, so, and I essentially, so that that kind of drew me also to this to this uh, notion of synthetic biology and the design. But I essentially made myself kind of a list of people whom with whom I would love to work. And first, I contacted Domitila Del Vecchio, who was on leave, so I couldn't work with her. Um, then I uh, contacted uh, Jim Collins, who was not able to like take undergrads in that lab for some reason. And at the time, though, he was like super helpful. And then uh, my supervisor recommended me to talk to Richard Murray at Caltech, uh, who is now, I believe, the chair of the Division of Bioengineering, and because she worked at Caltech with Professor John Doyle. Uh, and John Doyle and Richard Murray are kind of these big names in control theory and really did some awesome discoveries. So I ended up with Richard Murray and he suggested that I work on mathematical modeling of synthetic cells. And that was just like, I was just like blown away. Like, come on, like synthetic cells, like how cool does that sound? And, you know, and mathematical modeling, that was uber cool. So I worked on some modeling of developing a software frame framework for the interconnection of the modular cellular subsystems based on the modeling work that Dr. Vipul Singhal and Zoltan Duza did. And I also worked in the lab with uh, some cell-free extracts. However, uh, I just was still passionate about synthetic cells. So after year, you know, after year three, 
when I was thinking, like, what could I do? I was like, okay, like, how about I get a bit deeper into synthetic cells? And I found that Drew Andy actually had a project on optimization of, uh, I believe it was an optimization of membrane of synthetic cells. So I um, contacted him. I, I asked Richard Murray, like, hey, Richard, like, do you think this would be a good way how to learn more, how to kind of follow up previous work? And indeed, it was a great way. I ended up working with Drew Andy for a couple of months at Stanford in 2018. And it was just like eye-opening experience because I really want to credit Drew Andy for teaching me how to ask more wide-ranging questions and how to think about science and engineering in context. I still somehow remember the two key questions he kind of uh, ingrained in me somehow, just like asking why and asking why does it matter? Like, why does your work matter to you? And why does it matter to the external world? Like, who will care? And I ended up working uh, on trying to develop a protein-protein interaction assay and JCVIC 3.0, which is kind of the smallest smallest um, artificial cell ever created. It was a great learning experience. It was very tough. Uh, it was it was a great to, you know, uh, experience how, how often in the lab things that don't, when the thing doesn't work out in the code, you go, you debug it, and it's kind of debugging process takes dependence on the bug in the code, but it's much faster. But if this happens in the lab, it can take a week or two weeks. So, and even more. So I learned a lot from Drew about kind of thinking this about the science in the wider context, thinking about how, you know, the research, uh, how the worthwhile part of the research is just even to talking to relevant people, talking to key opinion leaders and trying to somehow, I would say, extract the thoughts from them and to put your work into the context and to make sure that it has the maximum meaning and impact. You know, working with Drew was just great. And I just don't want to say like uh, just with Drew, but other people um, in his lab. So uh, if I can just like, you know, uh, send, give credits to Anton, uh, John, Keisha, and especially Keone Gandel, um, with, who kind of taught me a lot of the lab skills uh, I, I I received. So uh, I would say I am an eye opener. Now you're currently enrolled in a PhD program at Oxford. One, which program are you, like what's the name of the program? And is there coursework involved as well? Or is it just you work in a lab and you have like a co-supervisor and you're working on one specific uh, topic? Right. So just kind of continuing this story, I was determined after coming out of Drew Andy's lab, I want to do a PhD in combining mathematical modeling and synthetic biology and control theory and um, hopefully maybe somehow pursue entrepreneurial interests. I guess we'll be talking a lot about this. So, so I really made my mind like I just felt I don't know enough. So I need to go and I really wanted to learn more and do more about synthetic biology. So I was searching for the groups who would be really kind of doing a heavyweight control theory, but applying this to synthetic biology. And I ended up working with Professor Antonis Papakristadoulou and Professor Harrison Steele at the Department of Engineering Science at the University of Oxford, where I'm doing uh, DPhil in engineering science. It's funny, like DPhil is Oxford PhD, but for some reason they call it DPhil. Um, and it's kind of classical research program, just as in the UK. So in the UK, often if you embark on such a research program, you don't have a coursework. You literally kind of jump into the project. And sometimes 
sometimes essentially scholarships or the funding is structured so that you kind of work on a given, I would say, a slightly bit more prescribed research project. Well, uh, due to my funding arrangements, I was very lucky to kind of have a chance to come up with my own, uh, I would say, research and with my own topic. And I just I just want to say that the experience of working with Antonis and Harry is, is has been really incredible. We steer the PhD much more towards computational uh, work, and so I'm doing kind of maths and computation at the moment. Research topics I'm really passionate about are first, like, design and analysis of complex biomolecular feedback systems. So kind of how can we analyze and design, you know, more complex feedback systems? There has been a lot of breakthroughs done in the field by people like Richard Murray, John Doyle, Elisa Franco, Mario Di Bernardo, and especially Mustafa Kamash uh, on kind of theory, even on a theory front. And now the question is like, how do we take these complex circuits, complex gene circuits that can work in a theory and try to model them in the real context? So that's one kind of the research topic that I'm very passionate about. And the other research topic very passionate about is microbial communities. So kind of taking the complexity to the intercellular level, you can start thinking like, okay, why don't we have, you know, some kind of function specialization? Why don't we have one bug performing function A, being it optimized for A, bug two, function B, but we potentially want these bugs to interact. And the question is, how do we ensure the appropriate interaction of these of these bugs? How do we make sure that these populations are stable? And there's just so many open practical questions with incredible practical impact. So these are kind of my current research interests. And at the top of that, I would just add that I've been working for a couple of months with Professor Megan Palmer and uh, from Stanford, uh, within the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative. And I've been trying to look a bit deeper into issues related to risks surrounding engineered microbial communities. So thinking about biosafety, biosecurity risks, and how perhaps a clever engineering or even a policy decisions could help to mitigate these. I really love how you added the policy bit in there at the end, because, you know, at the end, like at the end of the day, the policy, the communication is as important as the science, right? It's great that you've had so many different experiences with synthetic biology from like all different angles, uh, which is, I guess, giving you a greater appreciation of the field itself, as well as how, because, you know, synthetic biology has the power to really combat some of the world's largest problems, right? Um, climate change, for example. I think one thing that I'm trying to learn right now is like, I understand, like, you know, I have an undergrad degree in synthetic biology as well as in bioinformatics, but I've never really thought about, or I've only recently started thinking about the communication aspect, but I've never thought about the policy or commercialization or even the entrepreneurship aspect. Just a very short, very, very short kind of um, thought I had or thought or two. So first thought would be, I totally agree on the policy matters. Like it's, it, ma- it matters a lot, actually. And uh, often we can't think about engineering biology just about, you know, a closed enclave of, of us engineers trying to make cool things. Like we will actually need to, uh, you know, uh, get a buy-in of the society and politicians and everybody. And you need to, you need to make sure that despite we might think that, you know, we, are, we have great intentions and we want to do well, like not everybody might have great intentions. So we need to regulate very, very reasonably the biology as not to hamper, on the other hand, the progress. So policy issues are so important. And second, I just wanted to say that I think that 
there is a great thing about like focusing on broadening your scope and essentially building a general general kind of engineering knowledge and say general mathematical knowledge because then you're very easily able to potentially embark on the other projects like i had a slided tour last year working with uh, the Slovak Department of Health and Slovak government on modeling covid dynamics in Slovakia essentially like how to spread how to spread would work and it was just like in the end it was like dynamical systems so like whether you're thinking about your dynamical systems and biology or like in a society as long as you can capture something mathematically then you'll have the skills to um, look deeper into that so Coming now to entrepreneurship, you were admitted to the Newton Venture Program and are a, you're also a Venture Fellow for Civilization Ventures. But first, I wanted to ask you about Newton Venture Program. So, you know, I really like the websites. If you go on the website, it says, like, if you go on the landing page, it's like training the tech investors of the future to back the companies of tomorrow. Tell us a bit about what attracted you to apply for this program. I could frame this question in a way of like, why would I be attracted to like, you know, venture capital? And, you know, I believe that the innovation is the driving force of the modern society. And this is actually the way how we improve anything we do via technological innovations. We can improve all the aspects. And uh, I was really intrigued uh, by, you know, observing how how the companies are growing, how the companies come up with the innovation, how the innovative solutions are found. And... It seemed to me to be clear that essentially this is very often enabled uh, why private capital and why venture capital. And what I became you know, fascinated by was like, as thinking, okay, so I'm doing research, right? So it's kind of coming up with a new ideas, you know, perhaps validating at a small scale. But what really stuck to me was uh, a lecture by Professor Jimmy Moore uh, at Imperial College London when I took medical device entrepreneurship course when he said like, you know, validating your tech at a lab bench is not enough. You have to go validate it and then scale it so that you can sell billions of pieces to help people because whatever you come up with, if it just stays at your lab bench, like CRISPR technology just stayed on a lab bench as a nice nature paper, it would be super nice intellectually stimulating and intriguing, but it would not potentially help many people and would not help to drive the capital to support other kinds of innovation. And so I got very interested in venture capital and a Newton Venture Curse seemed to be exactly this kind of a curse that, you know, as someone someone without, you know, a formal business background, though I took kind of business courses in a college, it was a great thing that is mandatory for us to take courses from Imperial College Business School. I just wanted to understand much better the dynamics. And what was great was actually the interaction with the peers uh, in the Newton Venture group, I would say, uh, where, you know, it actually wasn't like, you know, it would be biotech oriented. It was kind of very generalist venture capital, so much more tech. And it was literally a lot of great resources, literally from for reading. So I think that often in the trenches, getting in the trenches experience is great, but you kind of need to master the basics. Like if you need to, if you need to, you know, go into for the dictionary uh, and reach out for the dictionary uh, after every sentence when someone says, you know, term sheet, SPV, SPAC, or series C, you're not going to get that much. So this was, a, I would say, a good way how to uh, also talk to great investors from especially great European funds, like, you know, Sol Klein, Robin Klein, folks from 
Atomico Index, and you know from Sec, but also from the U.S. funds like Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia. So uh, this was really great and very helpful. You know, Net- Newton Venture Program was definitely a great learning experience. But I would like to highlight that another great, a bit more bio-focused uh, learning experience was Frequency by Petrie. So it's kind of a course run by Pillar VC. A venture fund, Boston-based venture fund, and their biotech incubator Petri, which has been like also super helpful in learning about about ventures. So this was kind of the learning that gave me, I would say, some fundamentals of understanding of mechanics of venture capital. I would say your most recent venture endeavor was at uh, Civilization Ventures. So one, what's a venture fellow? As you've said, this is a small word. Everything is connected. So I once, I once saw a LinkedIn post, a LinkedIn reshare by Tony Kulesa, a partner at Petrie, and it was like about the venture fellowship at Civilization Ventures. And I was thinking, like, okay, like Newton Venture Program and Frequency, I kind of, you know, got some kind of fundamentals about learning. So I thought it could be very useful to actually see the inner workings of a venture fund. And what really intrigued me was that Civilization Ventures is exactly, you know, focused on the effects of venture capital that I'm really passionate about, which is uh, essentially diagnostics, digital health and AI, regenerative medicine and synthetic biology. I think that, you know, the role of the venture fellow at every fund varies. Uh, but in this case, uh, working with like a Sharam Sidi Noor, general partner and Temasab, the wife, Khan, the vice president, and Zoya Khan, the analyst, was really a couple of aspects. So first, kind of sourcing of the deals. So really thinking about whom do I know or like with whom do I get in touch who is working on an interesting and innovative company, especially early stage, because Civilization Ventures is focused more, mostly on early stage, uh, you know, uh, deep tech and biotech innovations. So who is either working on an interesting early stage company where civilization ventures could help and invest, or even like someone who is who is just like having an idea and trying to you know talk, talk to them and see if if you know venture capital could help accelerate the uh, creation of the product even in early stages. So I would say venture scouting was aspect number one, and second great aspect was actually learning and doing uh, investment memorandums uh, so learning for example how to how to kind of formally analyze the investment opportunity uh, so you know when you're talking to a potentially company you'd like to invest in or that actually you know wants to get your investment um, they would send you a pitch deck or and they would have some website and they would have some team and they might have some patents, papers and all of this. And what you need to do, because like great venture funds like uh, Civilization Ventures are getting are getting contacted by many, many, many companies. And I would say that you have to distill, you have to be able to like distill all the information and decide quickly and effectively how to filter things out. And also, we need to be able to persuade, say, say your, you know, uh, limited partners, where the people who don't actively decide about the investments, but they put the money into the fund, about kind of on what grounds you invest in the company. And fellowship at Civilization Ventures was absolutely great about about all these aspects. So 
scouting, learning how to do how to analyze investments. So bringing in investments, analyzing them, and uh, moreover, uh, just seeing the inner working and thinking of uh, you know of a great venture capitalist like Sharam. And I can just say that this was like incredibly, incredibly helpful and incredibly um, eye-opening, I would say, in many aspects. And I can't talk about it because it's confidential, but it was just like very eye-opening, say, to see how how you can do quick and effective decisions about choosing, say, which venture to go for or not to go for, kind of by high level, sometimes by maybe high level screen. And I would like to emphasize one more aspect, like this Civilization Ventures Fellowship was great because the teach, I would say, teaching aspect. So it wasn't purely about, you know, us doing the work, but we had regular sessions uh, with uh, with uh, the GP, uh, Sharam and Vice President Tenasap about like, you know, insider information about how the VC fund works, how the portfolio is being structured, how the investment thesis goes, and really this kind of background understanding. And I think this is so important because you can read as much as you can, but if you don't see this from inside, you never get a full understanding. And I think it was just like super great. And I'm very grateful for the, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to learn from Sharam and Tema Sabenzoya at Civilization Ventures, and obviously from the other fellows. Now, I wanted to ask you one thing, like looking at the top five Synbio companies, like both private and public, they're all US-based, right? I think, you know, the US raises billions compared to the rest of the world who raises millions. So let's focus on Europe, or maybe Europe or UK in particular. Like, what do you feel are, are the major issues at play here relative to the to the US? Uh, like raising, why is it more difficult to raise capital in the early stages? Is there like, I guess within Europe, there's maybe more regulation, or is it something to do with just investor confidence? Because the majority of Sinbai companies haven't really returned on investment yet. What do you think are some some issues at, at play? Oh, it's a topic I'm like so passionate about. And yeah. I would even It's a broad question. It. Yeah. And it's not, <laughs> and it's not 50 even, different factors. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even like, because, so I'm coming from Slovakia, um, which is in Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, what I'm, one topic that I see as a lifetime mission is like, I'm very passionate about bringing synthetic biology and uprising the biotech and deep tech sector in Eastern Europe. Because if you think that, you know, Europe is worse than the US, like, uh, you know, uh, I guess that, you know, Eastern Europe is, it's even more, but compared to the Western Europe, it's even worse, like just this, just this comparison. And I think that you just literally mentioned a couple of important topics there. I would say that if perhaps the most intriguing one is literally the different mindset uh, that often, often the, even the universities or, um, or people have. So in the US, the entrepreneurship and risk-taking seem to be very much encouraged. In Europe, this is not often that much of a case. So it's kind of mindset thing. Second, I would say it's kind of structural issue of, say, licensing and literally pursuing innovations. Um, you know, there's if you think about how many of the synthetic biology companies are being started or spun out, or like literally biotech or medtech companies, they are spin-outs from the universities. Someone does some great proof of concept research, the university files a patent, you license this out, 
university retains some small share and, you know, it's been of a company, which is great. Though I really hope that we will have more of, you know, like companies starting just with founders coming with an idea, validating it and, and kind of not necessarily doing it in the university context. But this is not that much pursued in, in the Europe, where often the universities are not as supportive or as flexible in transferring maybe the um, intellectual property and out licensing. Maybe tech transfer offices are sometimes more sluggish and sometimes universities try to be, um, let's say, a bit greedy. So they take a huge chunk of the equity of the company, which feels great initially, but then, you know, this yields company eventually uninvestable often. So I would say that this is a big issue. Next, it's the funding. Like if we think about, you know, like these very, very large, uh, like the US funds, like they are sometimes like order of magnitude larger than the European funds. And the amount of capital required to build a biotech company, as we know, is just huge. I would say that this is also something that sometimes uh, represents an obstacle. Although I just want to say that I don't think it's necessary just a matter of money because like if you look at say, you know, flagship pioneering, which is a venture studio, not just a venture capital firm, but their first funding, I think 2000 was around a hundred and I'm not sure, 160 million or something like this. Don't quote me on that. And, you know, even in Slovakia, I think that the biggest venture fund is 150 million euros. So it's like 180 million dollars. So it's not necessarily just the fund size. I would say it's this combination of attitude towards the technological innovation entrepreneurship, maybe some kind of regulations, and also things like, you know, uh, starting a company, say, in the UK is quite fast and you can do it very easily. But say, getting the money into the company on a convertible note might not be that easy as getting it on some kind of safe instrument as in the US, where you have like, you know, maybe the Delaware C Corps, where it's very easy to start and get the money in. And, you know, like even starting a limited company, maybe in Slovakia can take you two weeks or three weeks. And, and that's just time. It's sometimes sluggish and there is not a structural support. And I just feel that often what we lack is, is this kind of combination of like great science, which undoubtedly is present in the Europe. We, we know about that. Uh, it's it's absolutely undeniable with this kind of business acumen, you know, um, this kind of people who would have, you know, their PhDs in medical science and uh, computational biology, but also would be keen and open to, you know, starting the companies. So there is a, I would say there is a bunch of reasons. And actually with my colleagues at European Union Synthetic Biology Society, we are trying to, we are trying to disentangle some of these and, I think even now we need to we need to do something because right now the money flowing into biotech due to the covid and due to some recent successes are just so high so we need to we need to really think about how do we disentangle this and and I see this for instance for the central and eastern europe I see this is my long long term long life lifelong mission and what uh, you know we'll have a lot of life scientists listening to this podcast and what advice would you give you know uh, undergrad life scientists or, or just anyone really who studied who's studying synthetic biology right now if they're interested in exploring the investment entrepreneurship field as well as like why should more life scientists form companies like you know becoming an entrepreneur is not for everyone but yeah you know as you mentioned like right now is is 
possibly a great time. And it's an important time as well for more life science and bio slash biotech slash medtech companies to, you know, perform to tackle some of the world's largest problems. I want to preface this by saying that I still feel like I'm, you know, a very junior person. So, you know, I still yeah, have so much to learn <laughs> and, you know, like everybody take my advice with a grain of salt, but working on, you know, um, couple of kind of startup projects and on a stealth startup at the moment as well. To me, why start companies? I think it's kind of to to change things, like to build something, to build build something huge to solve the problems. I think that this is what we should care about. I mean, this is why I went into into you know bioengineering. I wanted to help people and solve problems at a scale that I felt that as a doctor I could help several or maybe even many individuals, but I couldn't perhaps change things at a global scale. And this is what what the companies, I believe, can do. And it's also a way how to, you know, leave your mark on the world. And if you're perhaps, let's say, an undergrad and you're thinking about starting a company, a, a great thing is to, so what you, what you need to do is kind of to have the understanding of what is out there so that you can, so, so you're essentially not like going and repeating what someone else is doing, like repeating the idea. So it's kind of, Try to have your eyes open, your ears open, talk to the, when you can, like read, watch, and listen to the opinion leaders, to the people in the field, read journals, and literally learn like what are the challenges that are not being treated. And when you're undergraduate, or even better if you're in a high school, like you have a great thing that like, if you come up with something really crazy, like you won't be beaten down because like, it's kind of expected, like you're kind of undergrad, you're naive, you're a high schooler, you're very naive. So you can just kind of, uh, you can just kind of, you know, a dream a bit. And so try to identify what are the problems uh, that are getting, that are not being solved. And just think about how you or you, and that's so important, not just you, but perhaps the people in your uh, network or people whom you know, together with you could go and solve about these huge problems. Because most companies get started by the teams, uh, say, with the complementary uh, skills. Uh, in today's world, none of us can be expert on any, everything. So one person can be a great uh, business person and having some understanding of science, but being the business person, being the fundraiser, kind of being the outside facing, outside facing face of the company. And someone else can be, you know, uh, someone very internalized and thoughtful and just really liking to get and delve deep on, into the bottom of the science problem and nothing can scare them more than like going and fundraising or something like this identify the big and interesting problems that you're really passionate about like if the problems bothers you it's even better maybe and then try to think about how synthetic biology how engineering biology could bring us the solution and you know then then and literally reach out to people like reach out even to people whom you, you would say like, oh, they will never reply to my email. You know what? Like many of them will, and many of them will love to talking to you because they just love to help. And that was my experience as well. You know, just coming from small Slovak village, uh, just like emailed out, reached out to, to many people of high seniority and they just replied and talked to me and my colleagues. And uh, we learned a lot eventually. So this would be my advice in summary. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share and check out our website, igem.fm, that is igem.fm. Thanks once again for tuning in. See you at the next episode.